something fantastic happened three weeks and one day ago. It's going to sound weird. My 81-year-old mother had a stroke. Now, I'm not, you know, just so you don't think I'm just too weird, it's not so much that she had a stroke, it's just the hand of God was all over it. I love when God shows up and shows off, and he was just doing that. Um, and God's gracious way on the surface, what took place was this, and that my father discovered it probably within the first 15, 30 seconds, at least symptomatically, he recognized what was going on. He called an ambulance, called 911 right away, which my wife, who is a nurse and works with stroke patients all the time, says, that's what you do. Okay, just put that in your back of your brain. He called, and uh, the ambulance got there. They got her to the hospital right away, did a CAT scan, and found out where the blockage was. They started with the medication. That didn't block it, but were able to get her into surgery right away. And modern technology and all that kind of stuff removed it right away. She came out of surgery, and it's like it never happened. It was remarkable. Um, she was speaking right away. That was one of the symptoms. She couldn't talk, but she was aware of what was going on. And she was speaking, and they tested her, and there's no deficiencies. You know, today she's just a little more run down. She's, you know, had a traumatic experience, but she's doing great. So God is a fantastic God. Amen, right? Right? Okay. But that's, that's just on the surface. Um, because God is always doing stuff below the surface as well. And what that did was it set in motion a couple of kind of remarkable things. You see, the last number of years, I've been kind of watching what God is doing. He's doing some incredible things in my, my nuclear family, my, my family of origin. And, um, and so what that, what that meant was that my parents were going to come here for Christmas. They were going to come a couple of days before, I think then leave on the 26th. That would allow them to get back home to Indianapolis and then my sister, who lives in Connecticut, was going to fly in for that following weekend, which was last weekend. Um, I um, am always looking for opportunities to spend time with my sister, um, as many as possible. So because my parents couldn't come here, I ended up flying to Indy and spent a week with them, um, last weekend until about Friday. My daughter, um, who lives in Fort Collins, she also flew with me. Her husband didn't have the availability time-wise off of work, so she came with me. And so as I was kind of processing kind of what God is doing and talking with my, with my, with my mom and my parents, I thought, I think God is, wants something to happen here. And so I asked my mom, um, would you put together your life map? Now, that may be a new term to you guys. It's, some life groups do it. We, we love doing it in our life group. It's, it's a person will, what you do is you, you kind of take a piece of paper and you kind of illustrate and diagram from your birth through today. I'm looking at some people have done that. And, and what happens, it's, it's kind of remarkable as people kind of do that because they begin to trace through sometimes the ups and downs of life some tragic things, some things that shape them negatively and positively, and they begin to see God's hand at work in their lives as they kind of trace that whole thing. And it's remarkable what it does because oftentimes things come to the surface that maybe I need to deal with or things that I need to acknowledge or need to kind of go, God, I, I never saw that now and until now of how you've been gracious and kind. And so knowing my mom's 
history, I asked, would you consider putting that together and then sharing it with us when we come home? And again, we're all of us together, including my sister. And she actually, um, one of my nieces, her middle daughter, also came as a surprise. I knew that was going to be a difficult task. I knew that was going to be quite challenging. See, um, my mom uh, grew up in a home um, in northern Indiana, small town. When she was roughly four or five years old, her dad had an affair. Early 1940s, small town, northern Indiana. You can imagine the stigma placed on that family and the hurt that took place there. Not to diminish anything now, but it was there. And so my mom has had to deal with lots of this stuff and even how she handled it. And so as we were even one day sitting on the couch with her and my niece also on the couch attempting to read, but me praying that she would listen more than read, my mom's recounting how she's dealing with. So she didn't actually do her life map, but she talked it through it. And she, she spoke of the history of her life and understanding now how the gospel was at work and how God was, was doing things and how she's dealing with it right now. And so the gospel just is peppered through our conversation all week long. So we get to Sunday morning and all of us go to church together. And that morning, it was a campus pastor from the church that uh, they were part of. Um, he actually works at a church in downtown Indianapolis, but he was there as a guest speaker that morning. And he spoke from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is three parables. It is Jesus' response to those who would object to him hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He said, I'm going to give you three parables. And these three parables are the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We know the lost son is a prodigal son. He actually didn't get to that one, but he just spent some time on the first two. And he, the, the point of his message was that God's calling his church to be on um, search parties after those who do not know the Lord. In the same way, the shepherd leaves the 99 and searches for the one sheep that's lost. In the same way, the woman who loses the coin, you know, she cleans everything to find that lost coin. He spoke of the value of that lost sheep and the lost coin. That's why that we go after them. In the same way, the heart of the Father recognizes the value of each person. And it ends, each one of those parables ends with, with a great celebration of some sort. And then Jesus uses the words that, So it is in heaven, among the angels. There's a celebration that takes place when one sinner repents and returns. And he shared the story of of how he was somebody on the other end of that search party eight years prior to that. Somebody pursued him. And he showed up on the screen when he got baptized and when he baptized his mother. And now he's the pastor of this church and he's challenging other people to get on search parties. And I'm going, wow. You are so doing stuff, God. And I was reminded, see, this is what God does all the time. He is always about the work of expanding his kingdom. 
And he's always inviting and calling his followers to join him in that. Join me. Follow me. Follow me. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 9 today. There is a, a turning point in the gospel of Luke that I believe comes in chapter 9, verse 51. And really what it has to do with this idea that Jesus has, has communicated who he is to his followers, what his mission is, and invited others to join him in this mission of building his kingdom. And I love the way this is stated, the way Luke says it in 951. He says it this way. He says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, being of course Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was that there's a turning point. I've been building into my followers who I am, how I'm trustworthy, what my mission is, and calling them to join me in this mission. And now we're going to Jerusalem. Because it's time. Now's the time. I believe in essence there's points in, in our lives where God is saying to each one of us, follow me, follow me. And so kind of the challenge this morning and kind of the, where, I'm, where I'm going and how I've titled this message is this idea of, you know, setting our face towards our Jerusalem. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray that God would identify to you what your Jerusalem is this year, your 2019 Jerusalem. Is, is it somebody or something that you are to turn your face towards in joining him what he's called you to do? So let's just pray that, okay? Let's pray. Father, um, I think that you are a God who calls us to yourself, reveals yourself to us, and then you call us to join you. You say, follow me. It can be scary. It can be certainly challenging. Um, but God... We want to welcome that. If we can, help us to do that. And I would ask God for everybody in this room who is your follower, that you would be showing them right now, what is their Jerusalem this year? Is it a who? Is it, is it a what that you're calling them to? Pray in Christ's name, amen. So um, I'm not going to, tell you what mine is unless afterwards you tell me first what yours is then i'll tell you mine okay that deal now you may have said oh, I nothing i don't know that's okay i'd ask you to just continue to pray and ask is god revealing something over the next week or two it's just is there something somewhere something i'm, I'm supposed to do in terms of following him but now let me go back a little bit from this passage because we're going to look in chapter nine a little bit earlier on what really sets this stage. I kind of alluded to who he is, what his mission is, and the calling. This is what it looks like. So if you turn back in chapter 9 to verse 18, this is what it says. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who... Who do you say that I am? And, they, and Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. That's who, that's who you are. Interestingly, later in the chapter, we get to the transfiguration, verse 28. I'm not going to read that, but it's a reaffirmation. As a matter of fact, Peter, James, and John see with as clear as day their own eyes and hear a voice from heaven, this is my chosen one, follow him, listen to him. It's clear. God, Jesus has revealed who he is. And then he goes and reveals what's, what his mission is. Verse 21 of chapter 9. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is a mission. So when we see set his face toward Jerusalem, we know what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. This is where he's going. And then he says, join me. Listen to this. Right after that, verse 23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That, that take up his cross, that's, that's the equivalent of your Jerusalem. You're not going to necessarily go to the cross the way Jesus is for the same reason, but there's quite possibly suffering and, and sacrifice involved in following after Jesus and doing what he's called you to do. And he says, that's what, if someone were to follow me, that's what's going to have to happen. They need to dis- deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Then he goes on, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's the backdrop. As Jesus is turned and facing Jerusalem and, and goes there, he continues to invite more and more to follow after him in that context. So, it's quite possible whatever Jerusalem that was, that maybe either you've been reprompted or have prompted in the past, and maybe there's something that has hindered you in the past, gotten your way, or you're off track. Jesus is going to share with, share to, with us through, through what Luke has to say, the rest of that passage we're going to look at today, that there might be obstacles in your way. There might be challenges your way, but this is how we're going to overcome them. So, Turn, if you would, to, to 51 through the end of that chapter. We're going to read this chunk, and it, there's really four scenarios. And I'm going to read the whole thing. We're going to come back and look at the... Th- there's, four, there's some four threads that go through each one of these passages. So here we go. To repeat 51, And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, again, this is Jesus, turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Then another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me share with you what I see as four threads through each one of these scenes. The first one is what I call the subtlety of self-deception. Consider again James and John and what they had experienced, what they knew. The other three are unnamed. We don't know who they are. There's nothing really to indicate in Scripture to tell us who they are or where they ended up or anything like that. So we have four sets of individuals. But if you were to ask them, are you a follower of Jesus? Are, are you doing what he has called you to do? Probably each one of them would say, well, of course, yes. And that's reality. Sometimes what happens is that, that things happen in our life that we kind of drift away and we don't even know we've gotten there. James and John, really, they're on the inner circle. And yet what happens is that in this context, we discover that they believe they're following Jesus as he desires when in fact they're not. Something has happened to take the place of Jesus being number one. And each one of them needs the word of God, Jesus, to speak into their lives. And so he does. The second one is this, another thread. And that is that, um, that there's what's happening on the, on the surface and what's below the surface. So we see in each one of these examples, there's something's going on, a conversation that takes place, but actually Jesus was able to see what is below the surface, what's really the motivation. And he speaks to that because Jesus knows our hearts and our desire and our motivation. So we see that happening over and over again. It's kind of the, what causes us to say, um, Jesus, you call me to follow you, but I, I can't. Or I won't. Or maybe even not me. Or I think probably about the most common one is not yet. Not yet. Thirdly, what we see is this, this idea of this side-by-side comparison. And I kind of alluded to it already. And that is that what is really motivating and that, that these individuals are putting actually above Jesus. Something that's causing us maybe even something good that we're actually putting before Jesus and saying, um, not yet. No, um, I'm not sure. But let me point out what I'd say was the most significant thing in all of these passages, in each one of these scenes, that maybe makes the difference for each one of us. As you should, to consider this. Who's the one who's saying, follow me? This is Jesus who says, follow me. This is, this is the God of the universe. This is the Lord and King of all. This is the one who is, who's given his life for you, who's worthy of our trust and of our hope, and who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he's the one who says, follow me. 
kind of like when you put it in those terms, it's like, why not? Of course. But the reality is, there's things that come into our lives that are revealed in this and build our hearts that sometimes we don't even see. So I want to address each one of these four. So let's go back to 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Interestingly, same phrase as verse 51, right? Because he has set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, we understand what his face towards Jerusalem means. You back it off a little bit, the disciples were told that, probably not quite comprehending all what that meant, right? Samaritans, you've got to back it down a little bit more. Here's this rabbi with all these disciples. They're going to Jerusalem. I'm not for, we're not for them. Move on. So, these inner circle intimate with Jesus and his purposes, disciples James and John say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Hey, Jesus, what do you say we fry this town, right? Um, probably not what Jesus would want. As a matter of fact, Jesus turns and rebukes them, and they went on to another village. So what's going on here? This is kind of one of those first obstacles we get, that we need to get over. This idea that when you're going to follow Jesus, you cannot allow objections and rejection to keep you from following Jesus into that mission of proclaiming him. It's so easy to do. Rejection is going to, is going to come. Not everybody's going to receive the message of Jesus. It's not going to be the case. You've probably experienced it if you try to share your faith. Some people just do not like to hear that stuff. Right? So what happens is that James and John are slightly distracted from the purpose of following him. I'm sorry, chapter 9, the very beginning, is the sending out of the 12. In that sending out of the 12, Jesus says this pretty clearly. When you come to a town or village that rejects you, dust your feet, move on. Chapter 10 starts off sending out the 72. Remember, he's gathering more and more people. He sends out the 72. Hey, if a town or village rejects you, dust off your feet and move on. See, what happens a lot of times is that when we have a desire to share our faith and there's an objection there, when people resist us and and say, no, I'm not going to believe that stuff, we are more concerned about the results and make it feel like it's our responsibility. We take it personal. They've rejected me. Two principles. Number one is this. It's not our responsibility to change a heart. You cannot change a heart. You can't do that. It's God who causes the growth. John chapter 15. The reality is this, is that lost people, surprisingly, act lost. You're going to face rejection. You're going to face that. You see, what God has called us to, and even we see that in the sending out of the 12 and sending out of the 72, what, what Jesus says is, I want you to be faithful. And not worry about the results, because you can't control the results. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love people, that we're not careful to, to know how to answer people for the hope that we have. 
to let our words be seasoned with salt? Absolutely. That's, that's vital and loving people in Christ and not being obnoxious and arrogant and things like that, of course. But the reality is you can't change a heart. Our job is to be faithful. God's responsibility job is to be fruitful. Make sense? Be faithful. He'll be fruitful. So we can't be consumed with results. All we can be wanting to do is, God, help me be following you and be faithful. When Jesus sends out the 12, when he sends out the 72, when he sends them to this Samaritan village, he knows they will face objection and rejection. Be faithful, he says. Secondly, I think we need to remember also what we battle with. Our war and our fight is not with flesh and blood. Uh, I think in March, we will get back to our series in Ephesians, and we'll get to chapter 6. And chapter 6, verse 12, reminds us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 reminds us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of God. It is a work of God, work of God's spirit. That's not our job. Our job is to be faithful. So we cannot let a rejection get in the way of continuing to pursue our mission. Secondly, verse 57 and 58 As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Obviously, this comes right after the fact that the Samaritans said, No, you can't stay there. And so somebody comes up and says, I want to follow you, Jesus. And he goes, Do you really? Because what's going to happen is this, is that when you say you're willing to follow me, You need to give up the right to live wherever you want to live and however you want to live. That's a pretty strong argument, isn't it? Hmm, maybe I don't want to. And that's probably his response. But the reality is this, is that we cannot allow that the desires of our hearts for where we live and how we live get in the way of loving Jesus and following after him exactly what he wants to. It means giving up that right. I'll go with you. I'll follow you. It's not like, you know, Jesus, but you can understand this house we live in, Jesus says, follow me. But the school district, our kids, Jesus says, follow me. I got this great job in, but Jesus says, follow me. So vision 2020 uh, that we've shared, we've said that it's our desire, Redemption Church would plant a church, maybe in the year of 2020, and praying through that. I tell you, one of the things that has attracted me and my wife to this church and this network is two things. One is that a desire to raise up leaders and desire to send them off and plant new churches. And teams of people to do that. Would you be willing to say, I'll go. If God calls me, I'll go. I'm willing to go. Following Jesus means I'm willing to go. Third, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Remember that on the surface and what's kind of going on below, 
This is kind of the way I say it. I stuck it in your notes. I said, following Jesus means we don't let family, and I put in quotes, obligations get in the way. Let me tell you what I mean by that. On the surface, it seems very admirable. This guy wants to honor his father by being there to bury his father. But see, Jesus looks below the surface and said, I know what's really going on. Contextually, let me first go bury my father. This is what's going on. There's two really possibilities. It can't be his dad just passed away because obviously Middle East, that time period, you need to stick somebody in the grave right away. If you remember the story of Lazarus, you know, Jesus, don't go to that, don't go in there. He stinketh. That's, you know, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. Okay, don't do it. That's because you put them in the grave right away. So either, number one, he's, he's ill and hasn't passed away yet, and Jesus goes, um, come follow me. He's going, not yet, not yet, come follow me. Or he actually has had that first burial, and then there's a time period when bodies decompose, and then they would return roughly about a year later to take, take the bones and rebury them. So maybe it's that in-between period. And he goes, but wait, but wait, not yet, not yet. And Jesus goes, let the dead bury their dead. That's kind of a funny statement, isn't it? Strange statement. What does that mean? Well, if we dig a little below the surface again, we kind of look at, well, a physically dead cannot bury physically dead, so he's referring to the spiritually dead. Those who are not willing to follow me, allow them to do that kind of stuff. You come and follow me. I want you to know, or I want you to consider, am I first or not? Are you willing to trust me and follow me? So what does that look like in our day? I kind of stated the principle of letting family obligations get in the way. Let me just say this. It's an encouragement to moms and dads. Moms and dads in our culture, particularly. Um, I speak to you as someone who, about 20 years in student ministries, in a small church, and a mid-sized church, and then a, a mega church. So I've seen hundreds of kids, and I've seen hundreds of families. And across the board, I'd say it's universal, with very few exceptions. Moms and dads in churches who are followers of Christ long to raise their kids to love God, to love others, and to embrace the commission of making disciples of all nations. They'd long to see that happen in their kids' lives. Now, there's no guarantee of that you do everything right that they're going to end up there. But I have seen something here in this pattern, which, which is, I would say, mission critical. And I've also seen things in parents' lives that they somehow are caught up in thinking it's mission critical to make that happen is not. See, it's not providing the best for your kids. It's not the best schools and the best house and the best vacations and the best coaches and the best extracurricular. Those things have their place. And I'm not saying they're wrong unless they get in the way of what's most important. What's most important is, mom and dad, that your children see a mom and dad who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's demonstrated by a passion for his word, for prayer, for people, for lost people. And so if you are thinking, I need to, I need to center all that we do around our kids, 
Get on Christ's mission and bring your kids with them. That'll change their hearts. That will change them. Lastly, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this imagery of a, of a plow, you kind of picture again, Middle Eastern, um, at that time there'd be a large animal, an ox or something like that, and you know, tied to them is this instrument you kind of are standing on, weighing down to create that, that row there, the, to plow. It doesn't mean, you know, you don't look back as to make sure you know, the rows are straight. I mean, that's the worst place you could look back. But the looking back is kind of like, you know, this is a lot of hard work. I don't know if this is worth it or not. And he says, basically, you know what? If you go back to say farewell to those at your home, to those who are not willing to, to follow after me for some reason, they might talk you out of it. They might remind you of how hard this is, how difficult this is. And so, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. It's probably the reason why there's three times in the New Testament it says, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there at the end of the chapter, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. But it's hard work. So I told you a little bit about my mom, but I haven't told you a little bit about my dad. So my parents met in high school, same small town, uh, my dad was a God-fearer. And what I mean by that as a God-fearer is that he acknowledged God exists. And it's probably a good thing to be a moral person because that's how you please him. But as far as looking to God to, to, to direct my life and I'm going to follow after him and his purposes, eh, he's got his thing and I got my thing. So my mom had actually been invited by an aunt and she started going to church about 15 was involved in Bible studies and actually trusted Christ as her Savior, got baptized. She looks back at that now going, I'm not sure if I really understood what a relationship with God really meant, but God was building into my life. And she started dating my dad, and her faith went in the tank. Okay? So I came to Christ at the age of 14 through a cousin who passed away. And at his funeral, it was probably the first time that I, at least I can remember hearing the gospel. Jesus Christ came and died on a cross. He lived a sinless life, died on a cross to take away the penalty of your sins so you might be reconciled to the Father. Maybe that's why I don't know what life is all about. Maybe that's why I'm clueless about life because I don't have a relationship with the one who made me. Jesus, I need you. It was a pretty simple prayer for a 14-year-old. And so I took it upon my mission to tell anybody and everybody with incredible lack of tact which, of course, um, put my dad and I like this often. I wanted to debate him into the kingdom, right? Argue into him into the kingdom, which he was not the most receptive towards, you can imagine. It took me several years to undo the damage that I did, right? But let me tell you what happens. I started praying for my dad when I was 15. I prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. I relaxed a little bit of my approach. And prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. And it got to the point where in my 20s and 30s, um, 
he had softened. My mom had start, invited him to go to church with him, and he would go, and he'd go to Bible studies and things like that, and yet this is what would happen. If we were going to be in a car ride, I would, you know, devise in my mind, I'm going to ask the perfect question because it's up to me, right? It's up to me. And, okay, here it is. I'd ask the question, and my dad would maybe partially respond to that question, and then he would say, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Oh, that wasn't a good enough question. And this happened for years and years and years as I'm praying and praying and praying. Finally, I got to this point. God, will you please send somebody else? This is hard work. I'm really not interested in doing this anymore. This rejection, this hard work, this I don't seem to make any progress. I don't want to do it. Talk to his believing friends. Hey, will you talk to my dad? He's fine. I'm like, he's not fine. I actually spoke to the pastor of missions and evangelism at his church and said, will you talk to my dad? He said, he's fine. I'm like, he's not fine. Please, son, send somebody, Jesus. And then one morning... It was a a Monday morning. I'm spending time with the Lord, reading and praying, and Jesus taps me on the shoulder, and he says, follow me. And I said, of course I am. He said, no, follow me. And I go, of course I am. Okay. Call up your dad. Invite him to lunch. Tell him you want to talk to him about his relationship with God. Ooh. Okay. So I called my dad. Dad, hey, Bob, how about we going out for lunch on Wednesday? He said, sure. I said, well, there's one condition. Would you be willing to, to talk about your relationship with Christ? Okay. So we did. I was not eager for this lunch. Why? I don't know. When God taps on the shoulder, he says, I got this mission for you. I'm with you. I, I hold hearts in the palm of my hands. No big deal for me. My dad acknowledges Christ for the first time. A couple years later, I baptized him. About four or five years ago, I hear him for the first time ever. speak to his daughter about his relationship with Christ, encouraging her to consider him. Let me read to you the very next two verses after this passage concludes. And then I'm going to pray it for you and me. After this, again, he's, he's gathering more and more people willing to follow him. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them this. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. (laughs) 